podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. All right. Happy Thursday morning. Welcome back to the pod. Welcome back, boss man. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it every time. I really do. Some listeners have been asking for more dynamite jobs updates, and my goodness, do we have them. Some are difficult to describe, frankly, boss man. Rolling out this new business in real time has always been a core theme of this show. So pretty pumped to do a little bit more of that today. For a while there, for a couple of years there, boss man, we didn't have a whole lot business-wise to talk about. I mean, the DC is cool and stuff, but it is a private community. It is a bit insider. It is about events and what happens in person in a private forum. And so it wasn't always felt appropriate to be the topic du jour on, on the podcast. Yeah, I think that's accurate. You know, Way back in the day, gosh, I remember doing early episodes with you and we would just call and ask each other about our day. It was basically a, a show about our business, you know. This was like before we had guests on and anything like that, and uh, it was fun. So I'm looking forward to getting back to a little bit of that. Yeah, and today will be like that. We're actually inviting the audience into what was something of a team meeting. So today we're going to introduce someone who is not a stranger, but has been on this pod four years ago. He's a supportive and active member of our community, the DC. In fact, he was a, a DC member before it was even called the DC. Now that's old school. And now he's come on board our own team to help us develop software for dynamite jobs. Today, we're going to talk about that and the void that often opens up between software developers and marketers as a kind of tug of war that ensues and it's fallout. And this happens in every company, Ian, between the product folks or the operations folks and the sales folks, except in you know software companies, it's sort of engineering and marketing that tend to have this struggle. And finally, we're going to talk about today what it's like working with the boss man. Oh, boy. So stick around for those inside scandalous revelations. You guys talked about me behind my back? Is that what happened? You know, this is how fantastic it is to have someone to finally commiserate. Mm -hmm. A third party, if you will, to unload my burden to get some insider dirt. Certainly, the audience should look forward to that. And also today, our guest is going to be very frank about some of the disappointments and achievements that he's had in some of the intervening businesses since he's last been on the show. So Ian and I will loop back at the end to provide some commentary. But first, let's do a catch up with our very own Prague-based Simon Payne, who is a badass software developer, formerly a co-founder, along with Clay Collins of Lead Pages, which helps entrepreneurs easily set up their landing page from which Simon left that company, Ian, back in 2016. He shared a little bit of that story when he was on the show last. So I started out by asking Simon to give us a picture of the scale of investment and growth that Lead Pages had achieved by that time. First round was $5 million, second, sixth, and I think third one was 27 So overall, if I'm counting right, $38 million. And so you're running a profitable company. Investors come in for $38 million. 
You have 170 employees. Why would you leave? Well, for a simple reason. When I actually visited the office in Minneapolis and I saw all those people in this huge room and this like fancy startup office, I realized like, what are all these people doing? This is just a website. You know, why do they even need me? Like, what should I do? And I realized like my skills were very useful in the first three years of the company, maybe growing from zero to something. And after that, when we were basically almost a corporation, I realized like my skills are not as useful to the company as they were at the beginning. And some people are just really good at growing companies from something to something higher. And I'm just really good at building from nothing. And honestly, I was a little bit bored. So I just needed like a bigger challenge. So I left and started doing software on my own for a while. Yeah, I mean, when we last talked, you were starting a startup called Convert Player. Can you explain to us the idea behind that? And at the time, you were very excited about it. And So Convert Player was a video player that was kind of inspired by a former video player I did with my co-founder, Clay, which was called the Lead Player. And after I left Lead Bitches, I had really huge ego. I really thought, you know, I can really quickly replicate all the stuff that we did with my founders. And I was excited to do new project. So I decided to do something that we already were doing before, just improve it and take it to the next level, create like a better service from it. Also, on top of just being the technical guy, I decided to do the marketing support and uh, video production and all the other things that I was not doing before and I was not an expert in. It was kind of crazy, right? I was doing it for like a year and a half. I eventually didn't turn it into huge success, even though it's still around. People are still using it today. Can you explain what it does briefly, Simon? It's like a marketing video wrapper. So you take YouTube video, you edit the comment player, and I'll give you like a special code that you can put on your website. And it's like a new video player where you can add some marketing events to the video. And what ended up happening with the company? Eventually, one of my friends took over. Why wouldn't you just keep running it? What happened there? After the pages, I lived for a while from my savings, and I made some successes with Commerce Player, made some money, but eventually it was not enough to support me, you know, month to month. Can you say what it got to? It stayed around something like $1,000. It was never like crazy. I had a pretty big success on AppSumo when I made, I think the whole campaign made around like 100000 revenue. So that was how I get most of the money for, you know, keep it running for a year. But eventually I get really overwhelmed by all the marketing and then video production, everything that I didn't even have time to do development. So it was pretty tough time in terms of actually being like productive on all different fronts. And I realized like what were my other two founders doing at pages and all the stuff that I had no idea how to do. And I get to try you know, all of it myself. I was just like probably overly optimistic, you know. I just didn't think it's going to be that hard. Well, what was it fundamentally that the AppSumo customers saw in the software that your day-to-day customers maybe didn't? I think it's not that the software would be like bad or anything. I just felt explaining it to normal users, you know. At AppSumo, I could kind of associate myself with a bigger brand and get more trust. I wasn't as good at acquisition of new customers that I would be able to explain myself why is it good, you know, and how they can use that. That's where my co-founder from Leadpages Clay really excelled, like the acquisition, you know. He can get so much people to use the product, you know. 
and trust him. Where I was just a developer trying to sell that, I didn't really like learn fast enough all the marketing things that I would need to sell that software. You know, you kind of built this baby and you had some success with it. And it would mean, I think, were you scared to admit publicly that it wasn't going to work out? Because you had sort of come out and said, this is what I'm doing. Yeah, I think I was. Yeah, I was really scared to say publicly. It was kind of intimidating and overwhelming because I created this like, you know, persona momentum. And then suddenly I was realizing I can't, you know, keep up with that. I think for me, the hardest was actually to email my customers and tell them, you know, that I'm not sure if I can actually support the software going forward. And I thought I'm going to like shut it down. But then I realized the software was actually extremely cheap to run. And, you know, some of my friends offered that they would talk, take over because the cost was something like $50 a month. That's actually where I was kind of good at just keeping the cost really low. Well, how did your customers respond when you sent them out that email saying, hey, you know, you bought this thing for me, but I'm taking off. Obviously, some people were really pissed, but it's not a you know super exciting email that you receive that the software you're using is shutting down. Surprisingly, eventually it didn't shut down. You know, somebody took over and they were continuing to run it. And I realized like some of the software I built, they're so sticky. They just don't want to go away and die. You know, as long as the costs are pretty cheap, they will just keep going and going. So people are still using it today. And what year was this about when you decided to pull the plug on Convert Player? That was late 2017, I think. And so you coming off this enormous win and then this kind of nah, sort of not great for your first, not what you were hoping for, I'd say. What did you decide to do next? I look at my skills and I realize like what's the best ROI of my time. And I could clearly see that the way I spent, you know, the last year when I was trying to jump between support marketing, creating videos, writing blog posts and all these things and wasn't really sure, you know, if that's gonna work or not. That wasn't very effective. But I knew that if I can make good software or good products, that's something that people are always willing to pay for. I just realized I'm gonna outsource all the other activities that I'm not good at, you know. So that was marketing and promoting the software. Tell me about the genesis of your next project then. Well, I didn't want to make the same mistake. So after Convert Player, I decided to partner up with some of my entrepreneur friends and kind of try to mitigate the risk of not having the software well promoted. That was the moment when I look around and ask you know, my closest friends. Most of them were actually from Dynamite Circle to see if one of them wants to do a project with me. Because... I didn't really enjoy being single founder and I realized I'm much, much better at being co-founder if it's a stronger and skilled team. So one of my friends actually had an idea, actually a couple of friends had ideas about what to do next. So that was very positive. My next project after Commerce Pair that was called Events Frame. You probably know Eventbrite, that's like a ticket registration, ticket uh, booking uh, service. So I decided to build a platform for selling tickets online, mostly because my good friend from Prague, Dan Taylor, was running events for Google. He's organizing around 300 events around the world every year, probably less this time because of the virus and everything. But at the time, it was pretty intense, and he had a pretty big need for ticketing software for his company. So we partnered up and decided to build something for everybody. And what happened? Well... At the beginning, 
actually got more than what I hoped for. Instead of just two co-founders, we are immediately four. There were like two other guys, Dean and James. And we were building this new platform with pretty ambitious goals to compete with all the other platforms. We very soon found out that there are actually so many ticketing tools around. We didn't have such an original idea. And we basically started building the ticketing platform based on what Dan's needs were at the time and his company. And after we did that, we started offering it to other people as well. And what were those needs that made you guys think that there was room for another ticketing platform? Because, yeah, there are a lot out there. Well, mostly because the number one, you know, ticketing software, even Bright, still had some features and, and things that were not perfect, and people struggled with that, especially even organizers like, like Dan Taylor. So we felt confident that we can kind of catch up with their features and improve on that and, and build new ones. And were you correct on that? In the end, probably no, because I realized people probably just really care about the basic functionality. They don't really care if there's like a 3% improvement in some kind of feature or usability on top of that. Also, for the ticketing platform, I think for some people, it's very important the trust and kind of renovate, like a reputation and stable platform. And because there's so many different tools, why would they use something that they don't know, you know, something new? So what was the height of success that EventsFrame achieved? After the initial excitement uh, fell off, we also were struggling to actually get some sales in. And one of the biggest problems was that our main marketer that was supposed to lead the marketing efforts left the company because he was hired by Google. So that was actually a big uh, disappointment. And then it was just like a three of us, me as a technical guy, Dan as the owner, and James as the operations guy. And we were like really struggling to figure out how to sell that. We decided to do another AppSumo campaign, which was actually very successful. It was even more successful than the one I did with Conrad Player. How many sales did you achieve? I think that one, uh, I think if I remember correctly, it was $150,000. Wow. That's stunning. That was pretty good, yeah. At the time, we had the same uh, adrenaline rush like I had with Conrad Player, even bigger this time. And I felt like, well, this time we're going to make it, <laughs> you know, figure it out. Maybe we don't even need marketers. It was very exciting. But those sales are lifetime plans, you know, the same as commercial players. So those people, if you are not really advanced marketer, might not give you money again. So you are getting lots of users, but not necessarily customers. So after that, we gained something like three or 4,000 users that are actually using the platform very well. And I think for the last two years, there were about 7 million worth of tickets processed by the platform. That means like $7 million worth of ticket people spent on the platform that went through to the people's organize those events. Now, you're talking about a business that is since you've sort of shut the doors on it more or less. I mean, if you're processing $7 million worth of tickets, why is there a problem turning it into a business? It sounds much better than it actually is. You know, if you would charge just like 1%, it's still not that great, you know to make actual like a monthly income. So first of all, we had this kind of daring innovative approach that we would not charge ticket fees. So we would actually not charge percentages of those tickets. And we were trying to figure out how to support that by just monthly flat fees. That was 
something that other people discourage us from doing and maybe it helps with selling on platforms like AppSumo, but to actually get the monthly recurring revenue in for the software that you would need, where you know, you've had four founders and some order expenses, that was already a really challenging situation. Suddenly like the whole marketing hypothesis was kinda like falling to pieces and we didn't know how to restructure it. So it was used a lot by Dan Taylor and he himself, you know, was making probably one one or two millions of those seven in his company. He ended up having the same problem I had with player, you know. Now I had co founders, but uh, because he left the marketing co founder and we couldn't get a new one in time to help with the marketing, we were still struggling to figure out the marketing for the platform. I mean, it does seem a little bit like history repeated itself with these last two startups. That's true, yeah. And I, honestly, I wasn't really excited about that. You know, I thought I'm going to fix that by partnering up with somebody who already has some experience, but end up in the same situation. Give me a second to talk about today's sponsor, Travis Jameson, smashdigital.com. They're the first people we reach out to whenever we're thinking about improving our rankings or any SEO question, frankly. In fact, recently I reached out to the team at Smash Digital with a 301 SEO project, which wasn't a great fit for them. So they referred me to someone who could help. And I know that's why we use them. And so many listeners of this pod use the services over at smashdigital.com. The reality is they really know what they're talking about. They've got skin in the game. They use the exact same methods for their clients that they do to rank their own portfolio of profitable businesses. That's right there, practitioners. It's really empowering to deal with experts who are just straight up and honest about what they can and can't do for your rankings and your SEO in general, rather than being walked through some cheesy sales process by SEO services built for people who really don't understand the power of SEO or how it applies specifically to their business. So if you want to have Smash Digital in your business's back pocket or just learn more about what they do, check them out over at smashdigital.com. We appreciate the team at Smash for sponsoring the show. How and when did you decide to pull the plug on that second startup? Basically, about the same, with the same logic as for the first one, like when the money runs out, you know, when we didn't have enough money in a, in a company, I realized, well, I give it my best, you know, I can't do it longer than this because I would start losing money. And looking back, I mean, are there things you might have thought about doing differently in retrospect? I don't know. It's always a risk, you know. Basically, I'm creating like startups and startups are like a crazy gamble, you know. You invest your time and usually like you have to invest like a year or two at least to see any result. It's like a weird sport that's probably like highly addictive. Somewhere I heard being like a startup founder is even more riskier than be actor in Hollywood, which is already super hard. So I guess like feeling that I've made one successful one already, like lead pages, made me feel I can do it again. But after commercially, I actually realized I can never really fail if I don't lose my money, if I only invest my time. Because I can always work as a developer and get high salary. So... I felt like it's kind of interesting game. I can just keep trying this over and over as long as, you know, I have energy. And after two years, I felt like, well, this is the point where I have to move on. It wasn't so easy. I didn't want to. I still wish we, I could stay and we can get a marketing partner and turn it around. But that's not what happened. Do you really think it was a marketing problem at the end of the day? I think so. Because we had people that hosted 
there was like a Dubai game show that sold, I think, for like $200,000 worth of tickets. We had no problems with performance, no problem with support. It was all just me and James like supporting this whole platform. Thousands of tickets being sold every day. With uh, I think we had like 19 different currencies. So I don't know what else would be wrong. Maybe the customer fit. I think back to Seth Godin a little bit and where there's a lot of interesting dynamic between marketing and the product people are engineering where the engineers are sort of like, hey, we got a good product here. Go market this thing more. And the marketers are like, well, I can't market this product because Eventbrite does this. And like, there's nothing inherent about the product that I can like say right now, except for more of the same. And so there's this really cool like opportunity for you know, marketers to help define the product essentially so that they can say something about it that's valuable to the marketplace. And then for engineers to partner with marketers to help them develop the product essentially, like we'll build in the direction of market demand essentially. If I would have called you four years ago and, and said, hey, I'll be the marketer for Events Frame, I think I would have really pushed for my first step wouldn't have been to market the product more, it would have been to push for product changes. I think you were right on this because at Lead Pages, that's what I had. Like, there was always kind of this clash and fight between me and Clay, between development and marketing. And I had no space to develop something I wanted. I only developed stuff that was needed, that was already being demanded from customers, and we knew we can sell that. We had this like confidence, like, next feature I'm going to be built. Like, before I was building it, I knew it's going to be sold. There'll be videos describing it, and people will be expecting to have it. And there was this weird confidence. But it, even for Inconos Player, I was building something because we thought it's a good idea. And actually, you know, you might be building a really useful product or like some tool or service, but maybe it's not the one people are willing to pay for. And at Commerce Player and also at Events Frame, I was building like the perfect and usable systems, but it was not necessarily marketing driven. It was more from like a user perspective, you know. So that was the problem. So after Events Frame, I thought I needed a small break from startups and just be like a senior developer and get some of these like high salaries that all the other developers had. And about the time, actually, I get a message from my ex-co-founder from Leadpages, Clay, and he offered me if I want to work with him on his current startup, which is called Nomix. It's in the cryptocurrencies. Fira market. And uh, that's what I did for the last nine months. I worked with Clay. And it was really exciting. And I get all this cooperation and all this like partnership that kind of missed. His new company was much smaller. We were about seven people. And there was not much push to grow it, you know, past what was needed. And that company was growing. And I made basically like a three projects for him. It was very exciting. And I felt like this is where I need to be. I felt very empowered. And it was a really good time. Yeah. So what happened? I guess I'm kind of addictive to building these like <laughs> startups. <laughs> I've got a little bit bored, you know, honestly. Sometimes I enjoy more like being in a situation where I'm struggling for months and months when there's an opportunity or like possibility that it will turn around in any moment. I just finished like the third project and there was a brief moment when I was looking around like maybe there's a time to do something else. When you think about startups, because a lot of people listen to this pod and they dream of startup lifestyle, when you say it's so sweet, do you think 
you know, I could wake up a year from now and have tons of money in my bank account and like be on a yacht somewhere in the Mediterranean. Is that what you're thinking of? Or are you thinking of you being chained to your computer and drinking coffee? Like what is the glamour vision that you're addicted to? Well, I guess you have to like the journey, not the destination, because you will never be satisfied if you are going after this. This is not what got me excited. For me, what is really exciting is to work with smart people on really hard problems. Money at the end, that's maybe like something like rewarding, like long term. Short term, I really want to work with smart people on some hard problems that's exciting. And that's much better goal than just getting lots of money. Because at LeapPages, briefly, we were going after the money. And then it's really hard to find out like where's the goal, you know, where's the limit when you feel like, oh, now you're satisfied. And everything is kind of artificial and it's kind of never ending and you might never be satisfied because even if you get all these investments and high like revenue, everything, that's not what eventually the end, you know, keeps you, keeps you like happy. And after the pages, I don't think I even want that crazy success ahead of the pages. That was exciting, but that's not why I do this, you know, what I do today. How did you find your way to us? I was very active in Dynamite Circle, probably. I was organizing my own events. And, you know, over the years since we met, we become friends. I think always, like, talk with Ian and you as well about, like, what would it look like if we work together on something. You asked me for advice on some stuff or things you were building, but I felt like there was a both-sided, like, crash <laughs> that you would like to work on something together, but there was not, like, opportunity to jump on something immediately. Like, either it was just, like, not the right time or the project was, like, not validated enough or big enough and that all changed until this year which is i think nine years after we know each other yeah i mean i think it's worth pointing out because in the dynamite circle in entrepreneurial circles a lot of us have been you know friends for years over years and we continue to help each other out like we've been in masterminds together it becomes deeper than just hey i know that person but We've had a lot of mutual friends that have partnered and it just, these things unfold. It's an unfolding that exists for hundreds of entrepreneurs that listen to this show, not just, you know, me and you. These are how careers progress. And part of the reason I wanted to underline it, you know, for example, last summer, I don't know whether it was like in the DC or WhatsApp where like you knew that me and Ian were in Barcelona and you dropped by. And I remember that meeting because we had an office. I remember that. Yeah. I think that's where the more serious conversation started, you know, last summer in Barcelona. When I think it was around the time when we were you were launching Dynamite deals and you were talking about, like, how would that look like if that would be a big platform and stuff like that. You didn't even talk about Dynamite jobs much at the time. That's right. Yeah, I enjoyed that. I think, like, I will probably never build a business that would not be mostly useful for other DCers in the dynamic circle, you know. Even lead pages were heavily used in the community, convert player and events frame as well. And I think that's kinda of like once you're in the community long enough you feel like, well, I'm only gonna be building businesses that make sense for these people because they're my friends. That's why Events Frame was so nicely used and adopted in, in Dynamite Circle. He was actually built with other members of Dynamite Circle, you know. Danny Taylor is also, like, one of the members. It's interesting, like, you know, Jason Calacanis recently described on his podcast 
or it was Naval Ravikant, but rather he was speaking about how important it is that in San Francisco, everybody's like around each other and they basically are become the early adopters for each other's ideas and projects. And I see a lot of the same sort of thing happening inside the DC. It's just a different culture and a different style of business. Yeah, I don't think we need to be like physically near to each other. Like having the forum and having the same culture of the community kind of brings us together wherever we are. And these things like lead to interesting conversations, you know, and you can have them both online, but usually when you actually meet finally in person, that's where like something really valuable happens, you know, like somebody suggests some idea or business and next year, you know, it actually happens. But that moment when you actually met always kind of like seals the you know friendship or partnership. Yeah. I don't remember the exact moment, but I do remember we're always chatting on the phone and, and in DC and stuff over the years and in person. And then there was a moment like during early COVID where Ian and I were like really banging our head against like a bunch of bubble gum, duct tape, spreadsheets. You know how people do it. We're just absolutely trying to get complex things done without real software. We're trying to piece together a bunch of tools to get product shipped to our DJ customers. And I think that's sort of where the opportunity to work with you came up. Do you remember how that conversation started? I think Ian mentioned something like, you know, that we are ready to make a real software, something like that. And I had like very strong feeling that, you know, it's actually true. I think it was growing, you know, this idea that we'll do something together for a while. And I was actually very impressed, like how far you got with your team without actually building your own like software platform. In a way that, you know, in 2010, when suddenly there was like a Gmail and Skype and all these things that enabled you to do business online, now there are things that enable you have like almost like a platforms online without having your own software. And that can be good, but it can be kind of tricky because you might be doing sometimes too long before you realize, oh, I should just started building something on my own. And I feel like this is the exact right moment for Dynamite Jobs to start building their own platform. So that's where I come in. We're going to pick up on this story as we like go along on the pod. But one thing I got to say, you know, people have been listening to Ian on this podcast for over 10 years, but you've been his friend and his buddy. So you've got two different relationships with him as a listener and as a buddy. What's it like working with Ian that you didn't know about before you started working with him on a daily basis? I think it's what really surprised me. It's much, much better than I expected. <laughs> what did you expect that would be negative? I didn't think I expected negative. I thought it would be harder because he, I didn't know much about his like work style. All of that I knew only from the podcast. And I get the sense, you know, it would be much, much uh, harder and more like, detail-oriented and maybe even like micromanaging or like, I don't know, maybe we get this whole like aura about Ian as a postman. It's really hard. And that was all like from the podcast, from the community, but I didn't actually knew any of that because we were, I was, he was mostly my friend. You know, most of the conversations we had were face-to-face -to -face or we hang out in Prague, Barcelona, Bangkok, Amsterdam, all over the world. So I didn't, I had no idea how it's to work with him actually. And it was kind of risk because sometimes working with your friends, can be bad and not so useful. But when I started working with him, I realized he's got very, very strong product design skills that were very useful to somebody like me. And not just like talking usability and stuff, but also gonna 
still having the marketing and sales in the back of his head so that he's kind of directing me in the right direction where I need to be. So that's what I really enjoy. Well, cool. We'll see if that holds up and uh, we'll keep dipping back into the story. It's good to hear a little behind the scenes on The Boss Man and it's good to see some behind the scenes with you today, Simon. Uh, It's been a pleasure working with you thus far and we'll keep checking in. Cool. Thank you for having me. A big shout out to Simon for dropping by the show. Basically a team call. Except for I wasn't invited. That's the, <laughs> that's the only difference, which uh, I could see happening in the future as well. Hey, Ian, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is some of your recollections of our previous SaaS products. Because one of the themes of this conversation was like, you know, we tend to make mistakes all the time. Obviously, we're running experiments as entrepreneurs. We also tend to repeat mistakes. And we sort of think, are we going to repeat them in the future? Well, I wouldn't maybe call it a mistake, but one of our former and failed ventures that we shared on this show was a SaaS business. And I'm wondering if, you know, and that was back in 2014, so, so long ago, what comes to your mind when I say the words Valet Up? What memories do you have of that business project? Yeah, Valet Up was a, you know, we were selling Valet parking equipment and uh, we were trying to push up the value chain, meaning we're trying to figure out how we can sell these companies more product and solve more of their problems. And one of the problems that valet companies have is the software that they use. It's kind of complicated because, you know, a lot of times at a hotel, a valet company is a a separate entity, even a separate company than the hotel. And a lot of times they use the software that sometimes has to integrate with the hotel, but sometimes doesn't. So anyways, we saw some opportunities there. And we built a piece of software that we thought was uh, solving a, a problem for them. I think, you know, this could be a whole show, Dan, but basically a lot of what we were trying to do there was like re-engineering problems that didn't need to be solved, basically. So that was one mistake. And the reason we were making that mistake is we weren't working closely enough with our customers to understand exactly what their needs were. And I think, you know, we might be falling a little bit prey to that right now, but part of what we're building right now is actually new. I think some of it's novel and some of it's risky, you know, and I think you have to take those types of risks. I mean, I think you could just go knock off another software product and do everything the exact same. But sometimes if you have insight, and I think at the time when we were doing Valley Up, we didn't really have insight. We were just building what we thought we wanted to happen. You can fail. And so, you know, this go around, Dan, I don't know. I feel like we have a little bit more insight because we have been working with these people for on these specific set of problems for a couple of years now. Whereas in the valet industry, we're not doing that. It is interesting though, to look back and say, you know, it didn't work out last time. Hopefully things are different this time. And I do think that we are a lot more engaged in our market. And also we are dog fooding in our market in a way that we weren't in the valet market where me and you weren't about ready to go get some accounts at some Sheratons and park some Lambos. That was like not in our future, but very much we would be users and customers and hopefully profitable customers of the software we're aiming to build right now. So I do think that that's different. We have this sort of innate sense of how we would make money off of it. Yeah, there's a lot of things that are different, honestly. I mean, just look at the partner dynamics from 2014. They were very different too. Really, I was the one that was driving the product. Our other partner in that was managing a developer to do the work. So there was some disconnection. It was a little bit disconnected there. And then 
you weren't really involved much at all except for some of the strategic questions that came up. So just in terms of the the way that the partnership was structured too, I think was kind of set up to fail from the beginning as well. Yeah. I mean, we, we weren't as incentivized to make it work. Whereas like, if for example, you know, Dynamite Jobs doesn't work, I'm going to have to move into a trailer in your backyard for the rest of <laughs> like that's what it's going to be for me. So this has to work. <laughs> it's true that stakes have changed, but I will say one thing that was you know, you said what do I think about when when you say valley up. I think number 1, thank you very much. I picked a killer name and that domain was available. Very nice. Number 2, we actually got to use that as an instrument during the sale of the business. There were some obstacles to overcome with the way that the deal was financed and the way that the new owner took it over. That piece of software, thanks to our other partner, was kind of gifted into that business. And then we were able to use it in a way that was advantageous in the sale. We didn't like make any money off it or anything like that. But it's just to say, like strategically, it was very helpful. So it was kind of like this weird byproduct, you know, it's like we spent like a year making this thing. It didn't really work out. But in the end, it kind of did work out when we sold that company. This is one quote I wanted to pick up on and share with you, Ian. Basically, we're talking about how marketers in, in online businesses help define the product itself. And then the engineers, they partner with the marketers directly. And so Simon said, that's exactly what we had at lead pages. There was always this clash and fight between me and Clay, between development and marketing. I had no space to develop something I wanted. I only developed stuff that was needed. My secret sauce to making good software products is being hammered by marketing. And I can't develop things fast as I would like because I always have to keep doing those features that, you know, enable more sales. I take this as kind of a call to arms and it's kind of cool, you know, since day one, Simon's always been teaching us about this dynamic of like, hey, I need the market intelligence to overwhelm the engineering desk here. I think he's right. It's this trap, you know, and I talked about it a little bit with like Valley Up. You know, we we took it from like a development forward first approach and and it failed because we weren't talking to our customers enough. If you're letting the market drive your product development, I think you're in a good place. And I think that's what Simon's saying. If you let your developers drive the product, you might not end up with anybody seeing it because nobody's talking about it because nobody needs it. You're building the the beautiful contraption that nobody wants. Yeah. And the interesting thing though, Ian, is like when you say, you know, listening to the market or whatever, you don't actually mean listening to the market. No, I mean talking to the market and then asking them for money. That's the talk. <laughs> if you build something beautiful and you put people in it and you say, do you think this is beautiful? A lot of times they'll just say, yeah. It doesn't mean they're going to buy it, right? It doesn't mean they're going to use it efficiently. It doesn't mean it's going to make them money or they're going to stick with it. And so that is the key to me that I think marketers can bring to the table in terms of product development is that sense of like what people are actually doing out there in the marketplace and how the product can sort of plug itself into that existent behavior. Well, we just had a conversation before we flipped on these microphones. We've kind of identified these three subsets of customers. And again, we're like very early days. So we're start trying to figure out like who's going to pay us money and who's going to be the best customer and you know what's going to win. But you know, the conversation we had was like, okay, we got these three subsets of customers. Like, let's pull together everything that we're doing for these people right now. And a lot of them we're doing it for free and figure out if we can charge them for any of it. And then actually go out and charge them for it. 
I'm starting to believe that like the earlier you can get product in front of people, and this is probably obvious, but the earlier you can get product in front of people, I don't care if the churn is 75%, at least you know that they churned 75% and they were willing to pay initially $19. Because if you don't run the experiment, you will just forever build your dream product. And I think that's what Simon is rallying against is getting in a situation where he's just building his dream product and he has zero market intelligence. 100%. So that's the kind of market talking we are talking about. And hopefully we'll have more to talk about with y'all in the coming weeks as we continue to run experiments. Just for some brief context, Simon's been working with us on Dynamite Jobs since early in the summer and we're on the phone all week long. So as a as sort of the back story to what's going on here, you know, Simon's in the day-to-day trenches with us on DJ. So it's pretty exciting. That's it for this week. Ian, we'll be back next Thursday morning, as always. And a big shout out to our sponsor, Smash Digital, for checking out the show, of course. They're our go-to SEO experts. You can check them out at smashdigital.com. Talk to you next week. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.